0: Our sermon today is from Psalm 130. Let's read this passage now and please remain standing for the reading of God's word. A song of assent. Out of the depths I call to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquity, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh. My soul does hope. And for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving and kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. These are God's words. You can take your seats. We're continuing through our series on the Psalms of Ascent. And today, with Psalm 130, we have a beautiful reminder of God's desire to forgive sinners. If God were to count our iniquities, none of us could stand. But as the Psalm says, with him, there is forgiveness. Now, our holy God hates all sin, but he not only has an appropriate hatred towards sin, the sin of all men, he also loves to forgive the sins of men. So that will be our main meditation today from verse 4. With Yahweh there is forgiveness. Now we all know this, right? It is central to being a Christian. It is why we love God. Because he first loved us and gave himself up for us. Though we all know this intellectually, practically though, It is easy for us to leave this truth unapplied. The fact that God is forgiving is a truth to be lived by. We constantly sin, so we need to be constantly refreshed with the knowledge of who God is and his desire to forgive. So it is my hope that you would be refreshed in the knowledge of God's forgiveness today through this psalm. Now I'm going to be going through this passage as I usually do, starting from the top and working my way through. So I'd ask you to keep the text in front of you once again. We'll be referring to it often. And let's begin by considering the title of this psalm. Now the psalmist doesn't give us who he is or what the occasion was that caused him to write this psalm. All we are told is that this is a psalm of ascent. So we've mentioned this before. Psalms of ascent were to be sung as they went up to temple worship, ascending up the mountain of the Lord. But as it begins, we are dropped right into this unknown psalmist personal perspective. He lets us in on how he dealt with his sin. He's looking back on the past, and he was not in a good place when he began the psalm. He begins with, Out of the depths I called to you, O Yahweh, So out of the depths he called past tense. Now, out of the depths, what does he mean by the depths? Well, we all know that if you or I were to say that we were saying something out of our depths, it would convey something of deep or intense feelings or thoughts. And I think that this plea is obviously coming from his depths in this sense too. He is feeling something in his core. But is this all that is in view here? I think, and most commentators take it this way, that there is something more to this word, depths. Since he is reflecting upon his sin throughout the psalm, it makes sense to think that these depths are specifically the depths of guilt and despair. He is despairing in his sin before God. But more than this, the depths communicate things of symbolic significance as well. The depths in the natural world are covered in water. Though waters are not mentioned here, we should consider these depths to be deep waters. There are plenty of reasons to believe that the psalmist's initial audience would have taken it to be this way. Sin has led his soul into deep waters, and this symbol means something. It is scary down there in the depths of the ocean. It is dark, lonely, and deadly down there. And in a spiritual sense, it was from there that the psalmist cried. When our eyes are open to the depths of our sin, you cannot help but feel yourself sinking down, down, down. You were made low. Your guilt and fear takes you down there. We as Christians understand the appropriateness of this imagery because we have felt it. Failing sucks. Guilt is a terrible feeling. It brings you low. But the Christian does not stay there, obviously. They must not. It is from there that we cry out to Yahweh, and he pulls us out of those depths. It is a horrible thing to be in those depths, but once we are pulled out, we can see that it was necessary for us to pass through those depths. It is necessary for us to sense the weight of our sin so that we might desire the one who can save us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly guilt leads to repentance. So in order to be saved, we had to be taken low in our guilt, before we could be raised to freedom from the depths. Think about how common this theme is throughout Scripture. The people of God being taken through the depths to their salvation, to their freedom. God's plan of salvation frequently involves drawing people out of literal deep waters. You all know, when God redeemed Israel, he took them down into the depths of the Red Sea and led them to their freedom up on the other side. That was with Moses at the lead, and he did this again at the River Jordan with Joshua at the lead. These were not incidental parts of the Old Testament narrative, as though it was merely a bummer that Israel was halted by pesky bodies of water on their way to the Promised Land. God wasn't forced into performing water miracles merely because of geography. He wanted to perform water miracles for the people of God, because they preach. Because they preach of deeper spiritual realities. Think about it. When the descendants of Abraham were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to God in their slavery and the depths of their despair. They were drowning under the, uh, the oppression of their enemies. And when their cry came up to God, he saved them by taking them through natural watery depths, symbolizing deeper realities of their upward redemption. And of course, Jonah was taken by God to the literal watery depths of the ocean. He was rebellious until God had confronted him down there in a fishy submarine. Consider Jonah's terrifying description of his experience of the depths. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So these bars, it's like a watery prison. This terrible experience was necessary for Jonah. This is what he needed to kickstart his crying out to God. He needed to be taught the fear of God with the depths. There is no place more terrifying than the depths of the ocean. Did you notice how Jonah described those trenches that are sometimes kilometers below the the surface of the earth? He called them the roots of the mountains. Men were not made to live down there at the roots of the mountains. Under normal circumstances, Jonah would have been comprehensively dead in the depths. In the depths, it is death in every direction. For the life of me, I cannot understand those millionaires that were crushed in the submarine recently. I'm sure you've all heard about the five people who died on their way to the Titanic, the wreck of the Titanic. I get the adventure, and I get the novelty of it, but even so, I don't understand how a person could willingly climb into that claustrophobic little piece of metal knowing full well how deep it was about to descend to. You know beforehand the immense pressure of all that water that would squeeze down on that ship. You know that you're bringing a limited amount of air down with you. You know that it's a major journey back up to the fresh air. You have to put so much faith in that piece of human engineering that could hardly have been tested at the extremes to which it was going. There are so many unknowns. And what if you needed immediate help down there? No one can help you once you are down there. What if your comms go out? No one is going to hear you. You could scream at the top of your lungs, and even the fish wouldn't flinch. Now, I don't say this to disrespect the dead, obviously. I am just saying this because that trip that they took was just skin-crawling nonsense to me. And that is because God made the depths to be a terrifying place. It shows us that. And that is true without considering the extraordinary carnivorous beasts that are down there, terrifying alien-like beings that lure unsuspecting life forms to their death with an artificial light dangling in front of their face. That is what God filled the depths with, terrifying things. That is what the depths are, and that is where the psalmist is crying from. The physical depths help us to understand ourselves spiritually. They give us fitting handles for interpreting guilt and despair. The human race has been lured by an artificial light. Satan, the prince of the power of the year. And nothing in nature can help us once he has lured us. There is no natural hope of living when we were in the depths of our sin. And this should naturally lead us to fear and despair. Because this imagery describes the experience of guilt and despair so fittingly, it is not only used in our psalm today, but throughout the psalms. And I'll give you one example. This is David from Psalm 69. He said, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. Like being trapped in the depths of the ocean, experiencing guilt is one of the worst experiences you can have as a human. In fact, it is far better to be taken right to the bottom of the ocean to face certain death in the depths without guilt than to be safe on land and miserable in your sins. If guilt is clinging to you, you can feel so bad that you want to drown in the physical ocean. Guilt has caused many people to jump off bridges. But as we look at the unsaved world around us, this doesn't often appear to be the case, does it? It appears that many do not experience anything of these depths of guilt. There is no fear of God in them. So, why is that? That is because this fear of God is a gift of grace. It is a kindness for God to show men the true weight of their sin. He teaches us to fear Him. So, how does He teach us to fear Him? He does this through His law. The law leads us to a proper sense of guilt. See how John Gill uh, shows the relationship between the law and guilt in his commentary on this passage. Now, John Gill was um, a 16th century uh, reformer, and he wrote many commentaries. This is what he said, quote, "Out uh, Out of deep waters he cries, this is the psalmist, not literally as Jonah who really was there, and from thence cried unto the Lord, but figuratively, meaning that he'd been in the depths of sin, or brought into a lower state by it, and so to a watery prison, the prison of the law, to be under its sentence of curse and condemnation into a hopeless and helpless condition. End quote. So one proper use of the law is to convict us of our sin and to re- reveal to us our helpless state, our imprisonment under the law. God uses the law this way. The law takes us to the depths, a watery prison, and shows us why we deserve to be there. Romans 3, 19 and 20 say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, so that Every mouth may be shut, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The lost hear the law and suppress the conviction that it brings. They will not allow the law to impress the, uh, the knowledge of their sin on their consciences. They will not acknowledge that they are drowning, and therefore, refuse to be saved. But by God's grace, that is not the case for us. As God did for Jonah with a fish, He takes the Christian to the depths through the law, revealing our sin to us and causing us to acknowledge it. And this is obviously a kindness. Our sin, if it is not confronted, Will not be properly dealt with. And if it is not properly dealt with, our soul will be destroyed in even greater depths in the pits of hell for eternity. So it is a kindness to be taken to the depths because it is only from there that we can be drawn out. It is from there that we are taught our need for a Savior. It is from there that we learn to cry out to God. And as we have seen, this is what the psalmist did. He from the depths cried out, in verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let uh, Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. As I've already pointed out, when you are in the depths of the ocean, no man can hear you. But God has the kind of ears that can be directed toward and attentive to a cry from the deepest seabed, when you were down there, the only ears that could hear you are God's ears. There are no other ears to appeal to. But this lack of options is not a bad thing, because the only ears that can hear you will also certainly hear you. He hears you just as clearly down there as if you were on the top of a hill with a megaphone. Now, I want you to recall a scene from the Disney movie Aladdin once again. All you kids would have seen Aladdin, right? Remember when Jafar's henchman threw Aladdin bound up in chains off the cliff into the watery depths? When he hit the bottom, he desperately tried to get Genie's attention. Genie was his only hope, but he couldn't get his attention. His hands were tied. He was stretching out his neck. He strived. He needed to rub the lamp, but he couldn't. God is not like the genie in that movie. He is never unaware of our need or incapable of hearing, and he never takes his sweet time considering how many wishes we have left when we're lying there drowning at the bottom of the ocean. If God is aware of our need, then why does the psalmist say Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. He did this because it is necessary for us to call on God from the depths. This is the expression of a repentant man. Of all the men drowning under the condemnation of the law, the psalmist recognizes his sin and cries out to God. I'm here, God. I've got myself into deep water. Please help me. He's calling on God to act calling on God to be gracious. That is what the prayer of faith does. The Christian knows that God loves to meet the needs of his own, even when they have sinned, because he is a forgiving God. God loves to forgive. So knowing this, the psalmist directs the forgiving God's attention to his need. He is asking God to send help his way, And without needing to rub a lamp or radioing in for a rescue squad, he grabs his attention. The amazing thing is, if we call for help in our hearts, that is without a word, his attention is drawn. He can save us from watery depths without a bubble leaving our mouths. If you are feeling the weight of your sin where you are sitting right now, You can call out for God's help, and he will rescue you right now from where you sit, from your sins, through Jesus Christ. Praise God. But we are jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit, because in the next verse, the psalmist was still in the depths. He explains in verse 3 why he was in the depths. He does this with a confession of sin, and this confession is made in the form of a question. Look at verse 3. If you should keep iniquity, O God, O Lord, who could stand? He confesses that every man, woman, and child could not stand before a holy God because everyone commits iniquity. Iniquity is simply sinful, immoral thoughts and deeds. It's another word for sin. If God were to count our sins, none of us could stand. Now, I want you to remember once again that Psalms of Ascent were to be sung by Israel as a congregation as they ascended up to the temple to worship. Since the psalm frames this confession in the form of a question, it draws out the people of God who sing it in a unique way. It forces every singer to supply the answer. Who could stand if God were to count our iniquities? The answer that follows is no one. Israel went up to the house of God as a nation of sinners, every one of them having no natural ability or reason to stand in the house to which they were going. They belonged in the depths, but they were going up. Think about how answering this question on their upward walk to the temple would have shaped the souls of that people, how it would have formed their culture. None of them deserved to be worshipping God, but they were going up to the temple mount. Think about how this should shape us today. We don't deserve to be here in this place this morning. How can we so boldly stand in this place, communing with God himself? Knowing who we are, none of us should be standing. Bowing or groveling makes more sense. You know the iniquity you committed this week. We've confessed that. I know the iniquity I committed And our knowledge of our sin is only shallow. Even with our knowledge of the law, we do not know the half of the depths of our sin. So what are we doing here standing? Why do we have this favor from God? The psalmist gives us the reason in the next verse, and I'll read it with the verse that precedes it. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you... There is forgiveness. This but makes all the difference. We couldn't stand. But since God is forgiving, we stand. The forgiveness of God pulls us out of the dark and silent watery depths of sin and despair from the roots of the mountains and puts us up on the top of the mountain of the Lord where there is feasting and songs of joy and sweet fellowship. We were drowning, but now we breathe in the sweet mountain air of God's forgiveness. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, who took our sins and our sorrows, who made them his very own, all so that we might sing, how marvelous, how wonderful, and so our song shall ever be. If Yahweh should count iniquities, none of us could stand. But he does not count our iniquities. This is one of the central promises of the new covenant. In Hebrews 8, God says to his people, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't count them. Praise God. This being the case, it would be wrong for us to stay bowed, to stay groveling. Of course, the posture of our heart should always be one of humility toward our holy God. We are great sinners, but he drew us out of the watery depths to stand on the sure ground of forgiveness. King David explains this exact thing in Psalm 40. He said, he drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, And set my feet on the solid rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust. You have multiplied, O Yahweh, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The doctrine of total depravity. A true doctrine that all Calvinists correctly hold to must not lead us to despair and self-loathing, morbid introspection. That is not how the doctrine is supposed to be worked out practically. Passages that show us our depravity have a telos or a purpose beyond themselves. They are ultimately the backdrop to something more ultimate. Freedom from our depravity. The abundant life that is in Christ. This is why it is important to feast like we did yesterday. Though we are sinners, we ought to feast like the kings. Because Christ the King is a friend of sinners. And he is not ashamed to eat with us and bring us to his table of abundance. This is because with him there is forgiveness. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus delighted to have table fellowship with sinners. Even the worst of sinners, particularly with those who had a broken and contrite heart. And that is what he is once again pleased to be doing with us here today. We are having fellowship with our king around his table, this table. Again, praise God. Now, there was one important detail we must not leave out from that last verse that I read. We're going to finish by spending a bit of time on this detail. Let's read verse 4 again. It says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We are forgiven that God may be feared. That last line, that you may be feared, is the result of forgiveness. That is what God wants from the forgiven. Now, how do we make sense of this, given everything we've considered so far? We considered how the depths were a place to be feared. But then did God draw us out, only that we would be put in a new place to be afraid? Did we go from the scary depths of the ocean to the scary, inhospitable mountaintops of icy snow and peril? I do think those snowy peaks of the greatest mountains are supposed to symbolize something of heavenly realities. Those inhospitable high places of pure white are something like the pure holiness of God's presence. Man in his natural state cannot live in the presence of God's holiness. And I think that this might be what Mount Everest is supposed to represent to us. It's hostile to human life. But the fear that those deadly high places induce is not what this psalm is referring to here. We will see that this fear leads to life. It's not leading to death. The best way I know how to explain how we were taken from the the fear of the depths to another fear is with the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. In the second verse, it begins with, T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. To some this might seem to be a contradiction, but it actually speaks of two types of fear. I'll explain the second kind of fear first. This is a fear of punishment and death. The Christian is relieved of this fear because the punishment they deserve no longer hangs over them. Christ loved us by giving himself up for us, and the knowledge of his love drives away fear. We see this in 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love, no fear. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we do not fear hell, because love is, cast that fear out we do not fear death that fear is driven away with love but the first fear of amazing grace that fear is taught to us by grace in a hymn about grace we rejoice in the fact that he taught us to fear it is a fear that leads to joyful submission and obedience this is a clean kind of fear. One that endures forever and revives the soul. It is the fear of the Lord. We see Solomon pairing the forgiveness of God and the fear of the Lord together, as amazing grace does in Proverbs 16:6. 6. It says, "By steadfast love and faithfulness iniquity is atoned for." So this atonement drives away fear. And by the fear of Yahweh, one turns away from evil. This is the fear that is taught to forgiven sinners and teaches us to obey. Redeemed Christians obey because they have been taught to fear God. Our psalm teaches us that this God-fearing obedience naturally flows from forgiveness. One leads to the other. A healthy fear of God is one of the ends for which we are forgiven. So how are we taught the fear of God that leads to obedience? To answer this, let's look at Psalm 19 and notice how this passage equates the fear of the Lord to the word of God. This passage is in your printout there. I picked up this idea from Doug Wilson, at a sermon at some point, I can't remember when it was, but let's read this now. Psalm 19, starting at verse 7, the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of Yahweh is, uh, the commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. So there we go, four different accounts of talking about the word of God. And then it says, The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. Now back to the word of God. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. together. And carry on. More to be desired are they than gold, that will be including the fear of God, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This connection between the fear of God and God's word shows us how we are taught to fear. We are taught to fear through the word of God. By faith We heed the warnings found in his law, and we also seek the great reward that the psalm speaks about, offered to those who keep them. So the fear of God follows forgiveness. Now it is equally true that the lack of the fear of the Lord flows from those who are not forgiven. Let me say that again. It is equally true that the lack of the fear of God flows from those who are not forgiven. So Psalm 36, 1-2 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The wicked do not want their iniquity found out and hated, so they sin as though there is no God. There is no fear of God before their eyes because they don't want forgiveness. They don't want their sins found out and hated. They flatter themselves by thinking they can stand with their sin before the all-seeing God. But they will be brought low in time. The last verse of the same psalm says, "'There the evildoers lie fallen, "'they are thrust down, unable to rise.'" When the born-again sinner begins to acknowledge God, they begin to fear sinning against him. Before that, they suppress the knowledge of God in order to suppress fear. And not Acknow- Acknowledging God forces us to face the one who we should have feared all along. When you, as a Christian, recognize that God hates sin, you too should hate sin. The unsuppressed knowledge of our Creator and Judge leads to obedience. Psalm 130 is talking about this kind of fear. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we are saved to reverential obedience. But again, this fear does not lead the Christian to a cowering existence. This fear leads us on to life abundant and restful, a restful kind of satisfaction. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of Yahweh leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited with harm. And again, Proverbs 14.27, The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Christ did not die that we would get stuck on our depravity and personal failings. He died that we might fear him and live. The fear of God leads to a joyful life of obedience. So when you fail this week, when you see yourself sinning, fear God and receive forgiveness. Both things. This is part of what it is to obey him. Cry out to God from the depths, or kind of depths, then knowing how he answers those kind of cries from the depths, mentally pull yourself out of the pitch you made. God doesn't want you to stay there because with him there is forgiveness. He wants you to know that forgiveness and live in it. This is how we ought to consider the fear of God. It is a wonderful thing to be forgiven and to walk in the fear of the Lord. lastly, Let's consider how Solomon, after exploring all possible paths to happiness, showed us the end of the matter. He said, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. May we be a people like this who fear God and keep his commandments. So we're going to stop there. Next week, or whenever I preach next, um, we're going to look at the rest of the psalm and consider what it is to wait on the Lord.